0: Amen. If you would, please take a Bible and open it to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you're using one of the few Bibles this morning, you can find the passage on page 911. In the 1992 vice presidential debate, Admiral James Stockdale began his opening statement with two questions that were certainly on the minds of most Americans that night. He said, he opened with, Who am I, and why am I here? It's probably not what you want to hear from a vice presidential candidate. It drew laughs from the assembled audience, and certainly Admiral Stockdale's questions were probably meant to be more humorous and existential. And yet, standing in the middle of incumbent Vice President Dan Quayle on one side and then-Senator Al Gore on the other, Uh, those two questions were probably on the minds of most Americans that night. Here it was, Ross Perot's rather obscure running mate in front of millions and millions of people who most people probably did not know. It was his intention in that opening statement and throughout the debate to introduce himself somewhat to the American people in the hopes that he might bolster Ross Perot's Presidential campaign. I think those questions, although they were humorous on that night, those two questions are probably good for us to ask ourselves every once in a while. Who are you, and why are you here? And I want to hone in on the second one this morning. Why are you here? And again, not so much of the existential, the existential nature of that question. What am I doing here on planet Earth? Why did God create me? What's my purpose? I want to know what you're doing here in this place. What are you doing here inside a church? What are you doing here in this church this morning? What compelled you to set your alarm, get up, go through your morning routine and be here by 1030 to sit in this pew and to go through this service? I can't see your heart. I don't know your true motivations, but I would suspect that most of you would say that you came ...to church you came to this church this morning at this time for the purpose of worshiping God. And that would be a great answer. In fact, it's probably the best answer that you could give. But what is worship really? How do we know that we are actually worshiping God? Why is it the primary purpose for our gathering every Sunday morning at this time... To worship God. Why is that the main thing that we do? Why is that the primary purpose for our gathering today and each Sunday as we gather? A couple of weeks ago, we began kind of looking at this really comprehensive statement about the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And we've been really just kind of digesting over the last couple of weeks, thinking about the purpose of the church, the mission of the church... The commitment to the church, the priorities of the church, and I want to continue that today and we'll continue it on next Sunday, next week will be the last Sunday of that. But as we read this passage and think through it, I want to focus in on that idea of worship today. So look at the passage with me, Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added number day by day, those who were being saved in the past two weeks, we've thought about two other commitments of the church, two other priorities of the church. We said two weeks ago that the church must devote itself to biblical teaching, the apostles' teaching. They're mentioned in verse 42 that we as a church must devote ourselves to studying the Word of God and understanding what it says, what it means, and how we are to live according to it. We said last week that the church must devote itself to unifying fellowship, that we gather together to spend our lives together. We gather together to be fellows, to be associates, to be comrades, companions in the, this, the sake and for the mission of walking together as a people of God under the Lordship of Christ. And today, we're going to focus in on that third aspect that I think pops out in this passage, and that is the idea of worship. The church must devote itself to true, to true worship. We, we see that primarily in verses 46 and 47. We'll be camping out there today. I want to think about this statement. The church must devote itself to true worship. And I want to think about this statement in two parts, first looking at the early church, their devotion to true worship as we see it in this passage here in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. And then I want to think more about how we apply this model to our worship as a church, this church, this specific fellowship. So let's look at the first part, the early church's devotion to worship. Luke makes this this As he does throughout the book of Acts, he, he sort of breaks up the narrative with these summary statements about the church. And this is the first one he makes about the church in those early days after Pentecost. It is a kind of example for us to follow. And in that statement, we see that the church regularly met for worship together. And we see in verses 46 and 47 that they regularly met for worship both at the temple and in member homes. Let's think first about the temple. The church met ...together for worship at the temple. Verse 46 says, "...and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people." So the church met together for worship at the temple. And on the Old Testament era, God established the temple as the central sanctuary, the central place of worship for His people. Under the Old Covenant, God commanded His people were to gather at that central shrine... At the temple to worship him. And they were to worship him there only. They couldn't worship him any other place. And when they gathered for worship, they had to worship him according to the commands he had given them in the Old Testament. They couldn't freelance. They couldn't go about and worship the way that they felt like they, they should or wanted to. They must worship within the the, the the strictures that God had given in his word. And it seems again from this passage that the early Christians to the days after Pentecost continued this practice. They continued to gather at the temple Now, again, this makes sense because the earliest Christians were first converted Jews. And for them, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything revealed and practiced under the Old Covenant. So it made sense for them to continue worshiping according to the revelation given to them in their scriptures in the Old Testament. They just simply now worship with the understanding that the significance of these forms and practices had now been fulfilled in Christ. So their worship services would have included, or they're going to the temple, their worship at the temple would have included going to the regularly scheduled worship services at the temple. Those those specific times when the nation were to gather together for worship. Their worship would have included singing psalms and reciting the prayers of the Old Testament, reciting the, the prayers of Judaism. They would have read the Old Testament scriptures. They may have even in these earliest days continued offering animal sacrifice. With the understanding that those sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus. Now, as the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection were further worked out and understood, and as the church took on a more Gentile character, their dependency upon the temple began to wane. Again, remember, these are, this is are the earliest days of the, Christian, uh, of the Christian group, the Christian faith, the Christian family, in those days after Pentecost. Uh, for example, so in the book of Hebrews, right... We see that the writer of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was revealed in the Old Testament. There is no more reason to offer animal sacrifice because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that was offered. Those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to him. So there was no need to offer those sacrifices. Eventually, the temple no longer even became an issue because in 70 AD, we know that the Romans completely destroyed the temple when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But in those early days, the Christians gathered together for the purpose of worship At the temple. And in fact, we see in verse 46 that temple worship was a matter of priority and commitment for the church. The word, the word that is translated attending in verse 46, attending the temple. That word in the Greek is the same word we find in verse 42, which is translated as devoted themselves. They were devoting themselves to the temple. They were by attending the temple. They were showing their devotion. That word that is translated attending or devoted themselves means to adhere to to persist in, to busy oneself with, or to be busily engaged in, to persevere through. As we said the last couple of weeks, this word expresses the church's intensity. It expresses their commitment. It expresses their persistence, their priority, in this case now applied to worship. And their devotion is expressed, as we see first in verse 46, in in terms of regularity. That they met day by day in the temple. Day by day, they gathered there at the formal times of worship. The Christians would go and they would, they would worship together in the temple. We also see this, this devotion expressed in intentionality. They met purposely. They weren't just randomly showing up. They, when, they, when they attended the temple, they were there for the purpose of worship. Notice also here that the church's worship is corporate in nature. Luke says in verse 46, they attended the temple Together, the picture here that Luke provides is not one of, of Christians randomly showing up on their own at the temple. They just show up because it was the thing to do. Nor were they showing up as individuals. How many times have you gone to an event? Uh, maybe, for example, my daughter is in the in the plays at CCS. Right? How many? I, I, we've gone over there before to, to attend the play. We have a ticket. We're we're just going to go, and we see someone that we know. What happens? We want to sit next to them. We want to fellowship with them. How many times have you been, for example, if you're going to go to the Good Samaritan uh, a banquet? You probably want to sit with, with Jeff and Mel, right? You, you know them. you have some kind of association with them. You just just don't show up and take a seat. And so the Christians probably were going there either as a group, or they were meeting together as a group. Not everyone worshiping at the temple, obviously was a Christian. Some of the Christians came there, they gathered together, they, they they gathered themselves together so that they were together. Devoting themselves to worship at the temple. They were deliberately gathering themselves. That word together, I love that word. It literally means in the Greek, one-hearted or one-minded. The old King James translates it as in one accord. Their common confession of their faith in Christ led them to worship the God who had saved them. And they worshiped Him together. That togetherness forged and strengthened the bond that they shared, producing peace and unity among them. So this isn't just randomly going to the temple. They were gathering there as Christians for the sake of worshiping God and his son, Jesus Christ, who had died for them. But they weren't just simply worshiping at the temple. They were also meeting together for worship in their homes. We see that in verse 46 as well. They worshiped at the temple, they attended the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. We mentioned this last week, that the Christians met together in their homes to break bread. We see that expression used again in verse 46. And that expression means, it seems to be both here, both sharing their meals together, as well as deliberately celebrating the Lord's Supper, that metaphor, breaking bread. It seems to be a metaphor for the Lord's Supper. And in fact, we know from the history of the church that those things happen simultaneously. That when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they shared a meal together. When they shared a meal together, they participated in the Lord's Supper. So the church not only was fellowshipping together, but they are also worshipping together. We oftentimes refer to communion as the Eucharist, right? And the word Eucharist is from the Greek word Eucharistia, which means to give thanks. They were taking this, Lord's Supper as an expression of thanks. They were giving their thanks to God. That is an expression of worship. So as they celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus, they were worshiping him by remembering the gospel, by participating in this table. Luke also indicates here that, that this is being done simultaneously with temple worship. They're meeting in member. So they're not doing one or the other. This, this wasn't one church in two locations. I think today I'm going to go to the temple and worship. Well, then tomorrow I'm going to go to somebody's house and worship. They were doing both simultaneously. Luke Luke presumably wants us to understand that the church was, was doing what they were doing at the temple is also what they were doing in their homes. And that is they were worshiping corporately. They were worshiping together. We also know from Paul's letters and from church history that the church met in homes for worship. In fact, church buildings don't even become a thing until the early fourth century. It was there in the homes that they praised God. We see in verse 47, they were praising God together. As they praised God together, they were were receiving instruction in the Word. They were offering prayers. They ate a meal. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. So all the things that they, that they, they were doing in the temple, they were also doing in their homes. Luke does not use the word devotion here to this aspect of worship, but certainly that theme or that idea applies. Because... They are also meeting day by day. Just as they're going to the temple day by day, they're also meeting in their homes day by day. They are meeting regularly. That's a sign of devotion. They were meeting purposely. They met together for the purpose of praising God, of worshiping God. So they were indeed devoted to one another. They were devoted to the practice of worship together as a body. So whether in, in the temple or whether at their homes, the church praised God together. I love how they... How Luke writes that in verse 47, that they are gathering together, they're doing these things, and the response is the praise of God. Praising God should be the natural response of the church as it gathers together for worship. Though they met for worship, they didn't have to conjure up praise. How many times have you come to church and really felt like not worshiping? Happens sometimes, doesn't it? But when you gather for worship and you begin worshiping, when we meditate upon what Christ has done for us, praise is sort of the organic response to the gospel. As we think about what Jesus Christ has done for us. So there may have been times when you came to church not really wanting to worship, not really feeling like worshiping, but when the music starts and you start hearing people sing, it just something happens in you, the Holy Spirit helps you, and you then are able to praise. Praise becomes a natural response to worshiping together, to hearing God's word proclaimed and taught, even to fellowshipping with one another. How many times has God used the fellowship of the people of God to help you to worship and praise God? Well, the reason for the people's praise here was the transformation they had personally encountered in Christ. Their source of their their praise was joy and thankfulness. That Jesus had changed their lives. Jesus had died and been raised again from the dead. And they trusted in that. They believed in that. And that brought a significant change of life for them. Totally turned their life around. In fact, we even see that, I think, here as part of the context. Remember that back in verse 42, the they that Luke mentions goes back to verse 41 to the 3,000 who were saved, who they were converted and baptized in the day of Pentecost. Those very people had experienced life changed. They had experienced transformation. How do we know that? We go back earlier in the chapter to verse 22. As Peter is preaching this, this sermon at Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's really some chutzpah, isn't it? Jesus died, but you were the ones who crucified him. You killed him. And then he says it again in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is putting the blame on them. He is indicting them as responsible for the death of Jesus. And by killing Jesus, by crucifying Jesus, Peter was exposing their wickedness, their evil hearts. He's exposing their rebellion against God and their opposition to God. It's because of them that Jesus died. And because of their this indictment, because they are blameworthy, Peter says they stand condemned before God. They are really awaiting the full measure of God's wrath on the last day. In fact, we even see in verse 37 that they feel the weight of this. Right? They are crushed by the fact that they are the ones responsible for crucifying Jesus. It says in verse 37 that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They understood their guilt. They understood their condemnation. What are they going to do to alleviate this condemnation that has been heaped upon them for what they have done? So Peter sees an opportunity here to declare the gospel, the the implications of the gospel. Verse 38, he said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So he's calling them to repent, calling them to turn from their sins, calling them to trust in this one whom they have crucified in God's way, in God's providence. What they have done is the remedy for their sinfulness. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. This very death was the means of their salvation. And so he's saying, look, if you are burdened by what you have done, trust Christ, turn from your sins, and trust in him. And so it says in verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day 3,000 soul, souls. Excuse me. Isn't that amazing? The transformation. To go from The evil, the wickedness of crucifying Christ and now being transformed so that they are His very people. That transformation caused them to praise. They remembered what they once were. They had experienced what God had done for them in Christ. And so now as they gather together, as they consider the gospel, they are gladly rejoicing and praising God because He had changed their lives. He had changed their destiny. So the worship of God here is the natural result of the organic response to their consideration of the Gospel. Praise God. If you struggle with worship, if you struggle with praising God, meditate upon what Jesus Christ has done for you. Think about what He has done for you, what He has accomplished on your behalf. And it won't take long for you To praise him as this church did. So to summarize here, the worship of God is characterized in the regular meeting or characterized the regular meetings of the church, whether it was in their temple or in their homes. The church met in order to worship God. Worship was their purpose for meeting, but worship was also the result of their meeting. That as they gathered for worship, to worship, they indeed worshiped. I hope that we can see their devotion to worship here. I hope that we can see their commitment to worship, the priority of worship for them. So having looked at this now as an example, how do we apply the same devotion to our church? So let's think about our devotion to true worship. And I think as we consider... Apply, how we apply this to our church there are four aspects of worship we need to consider the first is the meaning of worship the meaning of worship what is worship what does worship mean what does the word mean our english word worship derives from an old english word worth-ship. you can hear how difficult it is to say right worship so it contracted down to worship that word worthship or worship means the state or condition of being worthy. It's an acknowledgement of the worthiness or worth of someone or something. So when we worship someone, we are acknowledging its worth. We are declaring its worth. We are declaring the state or condition of its worthiness. We are ascribing to it the worth that it is due. We might also use words like glorify, honor praise, adore, reverence. These are all ways of communicating this idea of of worship, of acknowledging and declaring the worthiness of someone or something and ascribing to it the worth that it is due. That brings us into number two, the object of worship. The object of worship. Who or what do we worship? Well, duh, right? There's an obvious answer to that question. We worship God. We all know that. We gather together for the explicit purpose of worshiping God. We acknowledge and we declare the worth and the worthiness of God. We ascribe to Him the worth that He is due. And why do we worship God alone? Because only God is worthy of worship. There is no one else. There is nothing else that is worthy of worship But God alone. That's why Judeo-Christian religion is monotheistic. It's the worship of one God because only one God is worthy to receive worship. This is why God forbids his people in the Old Testament from worshiping idols. All worship should be directed to him. It's not to be spread apart and spread abroad to other things. It is to be directed to him and him alone. So in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, the very first two commandments of the Old Testament. God told his people, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, God is to be worshipped because He alone is worthy. We ought not to worship anyone else or anything else. So why do we need to state the obvious? Why do we need to state that God is the object of our worship? Because the fundamental human problem is rooted in the failure to worship God. The fundamental human problem is rooted in offering worship to things that aren't God. Worship that belongs to God, but giving it to things that that don't deserve worship. So, for example, in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we read, For although they, Paul here is talking about the Gentile world, Gentile people from, from, from the very beginning, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 28 says they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So we have to make this clear. We have to keep making this clear because there is a natural human tendency to begin to worship things other than God. It is our default position. It is the world's default position to worship things other than God, to give worship to everything else except to God alone. We need to make necessary that God is the object of our worship because so much of worship today is not really for God, but it's for people. It really saddens me to see the seeker sensitive movement, which simply tries to create a worship atmosphere or a worship service designed to attract people and pull people in, and it totally neglects the God whom we ought to worship. So if God is the object of our worship, our worship must be theocentric. It must be God-centered. It must be Christocentric. It must be Christ-centered. Our worship must be concerned only with God and directed toward God. Third, we need to consider the manner of worship. How do we approach God? We see in Scripture, in John chapter 4, that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well, they began to have a a theological discussion about the right place to worship. And Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in verse 23, John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So as true worshipers, Jesus says in verse 23, As true worshipers of God, the manner or the character of our worship must be spirit and truth. So let's think about those separately. We must worship God in spirit. Because God is a spirit, we must also worship him in spirit. And that simply means that we offer spiritual worship. Worship that is empowered and motivated by the Holy Spirit. As we've seen before in the last couple of sermons, we are a Holy Spirit people We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is about. God sent His Holy Spirit to us to dwell among us and to live among us. We are a Holy Spirit people. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We've been transformed. We've been changed. We've been given the new birth. The Spirit now resides in us. And because of that transformation, because of that change, we are able now by the Spirit's power to offer spiritual worship to God one reason why unbelievers although we are very glad to have them come worship with us they really can't worship god because they've not been regenerated i am happy for you to invite your non-christian friends to come worship with us i think it's a great way for them to see what we are about it's a great way for them to hear the word of god and i don't mind if they sing the songs and they hear the word but they really aren't worshiping god because they haven't been regenerated the holy spirit is not in them As Holy Spirit people, we are God's true worshipers. Philippians 3.3 says, For we worship by the Spirit of God. How is it that we are able to worship? By the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And by the way, in that verse, the word you is plural. Y'all. Y'all. The gathered people is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells when we gather together. He is present among us, as they promise. The Holy Spirit is not here because of this beautiful building that we worship in. It's here because the people of God are here. We are that temple. We are that people So when we gather together as God's people for worship, the Holy Spirit dwells among us and he empowers us to do what we otherwise could not do on our own. He empowers us to offer acceptable worship to God. Worship is a spiritual endeavor and therefore we need the Holy Spirit's empowering. And we have it. We have it because Jesus has given to us the Holy Spirit. We also worship God in truth. Because God is truth, we must worship Him in truth. And that means simply we worship Him the right way, according to His truth. Therefore, the truth must govern our worship. Our worship must be shaped by a knowledge of God and an understanding of how He desires to be worshipped. That's one reason why it's always important to keep the attributes of God before us. Who is it that we're worshipping? We've just said we're to worship God, but who is this God? We need to know who this God is. We need to have an understanding of, of, of His character, of, of His deeds, so that we can worship Him in accordance with who He is and what He has done. This is also why it's essential that God is the audience of our worship. Worship is for Him and not for us. Worship is for Him and not for unbelievers that we're trying to reach for Him. And again, that's why we must carefully guard against seeker-sensitive worship. When we are more concerned with attracting people, however noble our motives, we will dumb down and even depart from true worship and stray off into error. I think that's one of the reasons why many churches today in America are anemic and weak. I'm not lying, folks. I've been in churches. I've been through worship services where they play the Rolling Stones as part of their worship set. Who are we trying to worship? What are we trying to accomplish when we gather together as God's people? We need not neglect God and make our worship about satisfying the appetites of carnal men. That's why when we sing, we need to sing about God, sing the truths about God. It's more important that we sing theologically sound songs than opposed to getting the beat right. That's why I love when Bruce leads us in worship every week, when John has the opportunity to lead worship for us, they think through the message of the songs. It's not just about what's popular. A lot of churches are doing a lot of popular music and they've got Christians that are an inch high and a mile deep. There's no substance there. But when we are singing the truths about God, what does that do in us? What does that do to us? It leads us to worship him even more. That's why when we preach, when we gather together to hear God's word, we're actually preaching and teaching the Bible as opposed to to modern philosophy or self-help psychology. Why we must continually go to the Word of God because the Word of God is truth and it will lead us into truth. So we worship God in spirit and in truth. Last, we practice... How we practice worship, the practice of worship. How do we truly worship God in spirit and in truth as the body of Christ? And we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42-47 to that there are some common features of the church's worship. They, to a lesser or greater degree taught the Bible. There was instruction in biblical truth. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They broke bread. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. They prayed together. As we look to the rest of the New Testament, we see that the worship of the church also included other things. Things like congregational singing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, we're told to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. In Colossians 3:16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I think Bruce said this last week. We don't have a choir up here. We have people that help facilitate worship for us. We don't have a praise band that's trying to entertain you. The the congregation is the choir. We are all to be singing. We are all to be participating. We are all confessing these truths together. We are worshiping God with one voice. That's why it's important for all of us to sing and to sing loudly. We don't need a choir. We don't need special music. We need each of us together to sing and to, to, to follow the biblical command to raise our voices to God in worship. So they sang together, they, they read scripture together. Scripture reading is the second element here. First Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. It's one reason why I try to open the service with some, some, usually a psalm. Reading scripture in some way to, to help us think through God's word and remind ourselves of the, of, the, of the practice of gathering together for the purpose of worship. By reading the word of God, we grow in our knowledge of God. We've grown our knowledge of his redemptive working in our world and we grow in our knowledge of how we are to live before him. Third, there was the preaching and teaching of God's word. First uh, Timothy 4.13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching of that very scripture. In Nehemiah 8.8, 8, we read that the people of Israel gathered together and those leaders, the priests, read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. They explained what they were hearing. They explained the Bible to them. So the exposition of Scripture also gives us increased understanding of the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. It is meant to exhort us to walk in faithfulness in the light of the things that we've read and studied in God's Word. Fourth, they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We've seen this already in our Acts passage. Uh, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the very gospel by which we have relationship with God. It is the basis of our worship. The gospel is the basis of our worship. So even if we fail in our attempts to preach the word, we at least see it lived out for us tangibly in the table. Fifth, the church prayed together. Again, prayer being another means of praising God, of submitting those things in our hearts, submitting our requests to God under his sovereign will. And finally, it seems that they also took an offering. It's one of the reasons why we take an offering every Sunday as well. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there there will be no collecting when I come. So the collection simply allowed the church to carry out the ministry, That they felt God was leading them to do, God was directing them to do. So those are the six main elements of of worship, how we actually practically go through the process of worship. We see that in all of those things, there are three common factors. Number one, that it's corporate. We all do it together. Number two, it's simple. We don't do a lot of highfalutin stuff. There's not a lot of riffs from the worship team. There's not a lot of extra stuff going on. There's not a lot of complicated things. So you're looking at your bullets and trying to figure out what's next on the program of service. It's very simple, very basic. We want to do that to make sure that we are truly worshiping God and making it as participatory, making worship as participatory as possible for the entire congregation. And then we also see that worship was theocentric. It's centered around God. Everything is for him and for his glory. He is the center of our worship. We see at the end of the book of Revelation that John has a vision of the new Jerusalem and he writes in Revelation 22, 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his spirit will worship him. The worship of God and the Lord Jesus Christ will be our destiny. God created us to be his worshipers and he has redeemed us to fulfill this purpose. We will worship him forever and ever because he is worthy of worship forever and ever. And so that's the reason why we gather today and why we gather every Sunday for the purpose of worship By our worship, we're looking forward to that day. We're looking forward to that destiny. But we are also eagerly fulfilling our calling and our purpose to be worshipers, true worshipers of God. And as we do this, we participate in the life that is ours even now. We don't have to wait to worship until that day. We don't have to wait until we are called home to really do what we are destined to do. We can worship now and therefore we must worship now. We must devote ourselves to worship. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews twelve twenty-eight. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That is our challenge as well offering acceptable worship to God because we have received from him a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us pray. Lord, indeed, you have created us to worship. And by our sin, we have offered false worship. We have denied worship that belongs to you and given it to other things. And so in your providence and your eternal plan, you sent your son into this world to die at our hands, but in that death to bring us life and salvation. And you have redeemed us as your people. And you have destined us to be your worshipers. You have redeemed that purpose that you gave to us at creation. And now, Lord, because we consider what you have done for us, we gladly and joyfully and thankfully worship you with all of our hearts. God, it is our desire to worship you as you ought to be worshipped. You are worthy. We confess this morning, Lord, that you are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy of our worship. God, we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to help us to worship in spirit and in truth. God, it's my prayer that not just simply today, but every Sunday when we come, when we gather together for this, this meeting time, that we would indeed worship you. Help those of us who lead in worship. Help those of us who accompany worship, Lord to lead your people to fulfill this purpose that you've given to us. May we devote ourselves, as the early church did, in Jesus' name. Amen.